Her Majesty's Ship, Daedalus, October 11th. Sir, in reply to your letter of this day's date requiring information as to the truth of a statement published in the Times newspaper of a sea serpent of extraordinary dimensions having been seen from Her Majesty's Ship Daedalus under my command on her passage from the East Indies. I have the honor to acquaint you for the information of my Lord's Commissioners of the Admiralty that at 5 o'clock p.m. on the 6th of August last, in latitude 24 degrees 44 minutes south and longitude 9 degrees 22 minutes east, the weather dark and cloudy, wind fresh from the northwest, with a long ocean swell from the southwest. The ship on the port tack heading northeast by north, something very unusual was seen by Mr. Sartoris, midshipman, rapidly approaching the ship from before the beam. The circumstance was immediately reported by him to the officer of the watch, Lieutenant Edgar Drummond, with whom and Mr. William Barrett, the master, I was at the time walking the quarter deck. The ship's company were at supper. On our attention being called to the object, it was discovered to be an enormous serpent, with head and shoulders kept about four feet constantly above the surface of the sea. And as nearly as we could approximate by comparing it with the length of what our main topsail yard would show in the water, there was at the very least 60 feet of the animal on the water's surface, no portion of which was, to our perception, used in propelling it through the water, either by vertical or horizontal undulation. It passed rapidly, but so close under our lee quarter that had it been a man of my acquaintance, I should have easily recognized the features with the naked eye. And it did not, neither in approaching the ship or after it had passed our wake, deviate in the slightest degree from its course to the southwest, which it held on at the pace from 12 to 15 miles per hour, apparently on some determined purpose. The diameter of the serpent was about 15 or 16 inches behind the head, which was, without any doubt, that of a snake. And it was never, during the 20 minutes that it continued in sight of our glasses, once below the surface of the water. Its color a dark brown, with yellowish white about the throat. It had no fins, but something like the mane of a horse, or rather a bunch of seaweed washed about its back. It was seen by the quartermaster, the boatswain's mate, and the man at the wheel, in addition to myself and officers above mentioned. I'm having drawings of the serpent made from a sketch taken immediately after it was seen, which I hope to have ready for transmission to my Lord's Commissioner of the Admiralty by tomorrow's post. Captain's Report, Peter McQuay, HMS Daedalus. They say that the sea takes hold of a man like a beautiful woman. It consumes his passion and causes his heart to burn with desire. I think if we're honest with ourselves, every man would admit that when standing on the shore of some ocean, where all he sees is a blank horizon in front of him, there's a sudden urge within to go and find the end of that horizon. There's mystery there, challenge, glory, unknown and uncharted lands to be found. There's danger and fear of what could lie beneath the waves, which are themselves wrought with terror in one moment, in invitation in another. What lies beneath in the darkest cracks of the earth? Some say that monsters are there, horrors of unknown scale, ship-eaters, soul-stealers, grotesque beasts that no man upon meeting them has escaped from. The sea monster has permeated all of human culture, all of human history. Fiction? Perhaps. Perhaps not. About 5% of the world's ocean floor has been mapped, meaning 95% of the bottom of the world is foreign, alien ground to us. What surprises lurk there that we've yet to fathom? What monsters might make their home there? 
Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many supplications to you or will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you? Will you take him for a servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird or will you bind him for your maidens? Will the traders bargain over him? Will they divide him among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hand on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Around his teeth, there is terror. His strong scales are his pride, shut up as with a tight seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. His sneezes flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. Out of his mouth go burning torches, sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils, smoke goes forth as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals, and a flame goes forth from his mouth. In his neck lodges strength, and dismay leaps before him. The folds of his flesh are joined together, firm on him and immovable. The sword that reaches him cannot avail, nor the spear, the dart, or the javelin. He regards iron as straw, bronze as rotten wood. The arrows cannot make him flee. Sling stones are turned into stubble for him. Clubs are regarded as stubble. He laughs at the rattling of the javelin. His underparts are like sharp potsherds. He spreads out like a threshing sledge on the mire. He makes the depths boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a jar of ointment. Behind him, he makes a wake to shine. One would think the deep to be gray-haired. Nothing on earth is like him. One made without fear. He looks on everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. Job chapter 41. Welcome to the Haunted Cosmos podcast. Mm. I'm your host, Ben Garrett. I am joined here by my good friend, Mr. Brian Sauvé, say hello to the people. Mr. Garrett, it is so good to haunt the cosmos with you right now. Or should I say, say hello to the people? That was a a clear serpent joke (laughs) if I have ever heard one, sir. Thank you, thank you, thank you for that introduction. Ben, it is good to finally be here with you after all these months of, let's be honest, gloriously unhinged conversations around the office coffee maker. We could wax eloquent. Instead, let's get right to it. What are we talking about today? Yeah, hey... Today, we're excited to talk about high strangeness on the high seas. That's Mm. the the general topic. We have plumbed the depths of the internet, Reddit's best posts, Wikipedia's darkest pages. (laughs) Well, but not really. (laughs) But not really. (laughs) Yeah, not dark in a moral sense. Let's be clear. In the obscurity sense. Let's be clear. And we have found some really wild and, and we think very interesting stories about everything from sea serpents and dragons to disappearing islands and weird sounds in the ocean. And then we've also, we're going to be talking a lot about a lot of topics that are sort of adjacently related to that, that certainly are relevant and play into the conversation. But all of this, and really this whole project of a show in general is predicated on the idea of mystery. Yeah. And so before we get into sea monsters and Atlantis and all that stuff, Atlantis. Yes. I want to ask you, Brian, uh, mostly because I'm curious. Mm-hmm. If you had to choose, would you rather maintain mystery about something or mm-hmm. would you rather have the mystery solved? Man, Ben, that's a great question because it really is at the heart of this project, right? Where right. We're, 
we're taking up lots of mysteries and supernatural, mysterious phenomena and stories. And, and, and in a sense, like you can try to distill them all down and get to the bottom and explain every last nuance. And I don't necessarily want to do that or, or even have the hubris, I think, to think that's possible. Sure. You know, when it comes to these things. But there is a guiding principle behind a show like this from one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament that I think is relevant. It's in Proverbs 25, 2, where King Solomon tells us that it is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search things out. It is such a that's such what a cool a verse because <laughs> it's like you you picture God out there when He's creating this world, He is out there concealing mysteries and truths and glories under every rock and in every corner of the world. You go out and you find out that there's this element called silicon that you can turn into a chip that can power a smartphone, and there are all these mysteries that God has hidden in the world. And, and there is this instinct that is just deeply human to go and figure those things out. Yes. And, and that's apparently the glory of kings. So to answer your question, I want to search them out. And, and I know at the end of the day, there's still going to be aspects where you back up and you go, I, do, I have no idea what's <laughs> yeah. going on here. Yeah. But I am glad to know that there is a God behind all of it who is architecting these mysteries, writing this story. And it's a good story. Yeah, I think for me, it's a mixture of both. I I think that there's a lot of enjoyment and fun to be had and trying to find an answer to something that is interesting to you and and it's curious. But then it's sanctifying for us to find the end of our knowledge, the end of the possibility where we can't investigate further. And then to practice being content with that, where we sit back and we're like, you know what? It actually is really cool to still have mystery in the world. Yeah. It reminds me of uh, in Orthodoxy by by G.K. Chesterton when he talks about how the sun rises the same every single day because God delights in that. He says, do it again. It's yeah. this almost childish vitality where God is like, that's beautiful. Do it again. Yeah. And I think that we could all learn something from that same principle and apply it to stuff like this where we love you know, speculating and investigating and, and asking questions, but then we also are always adoring the fact that we can't know everything yep. and enjoy the mystery. We read an excerpt from Job 41 yeah. in the cold open. We also looked at this, uh, this account of an insane sea serpent. Mm-hmm. I got to ask you, my brother in Christ, also yeah. my pastor, yeah. what do you think about Leviathan? So uh, I think that there are two basic directions you can go with, with something like Leviathan in the Bible. And one of them I really don't like. And that really don't like direction is to just try to come up with mundane explanations for all these things. Yeah. Like Job is just poetically describing a crocodile. Yeah. Uh, there's no such thing as dragons. I'm like, but there literally are though. And crocodiles don't sneeze lightning yeah. and fire. So leave me alone. I take door number two. It's a dragon. It's a dragon. It's a dragon. Rahab, Leviathan. There's dragon words in the Bible. And they're not just all metaphors. Yeah. Dragons are real. Dragons are real. Fun fact, uh, the in in a lot of the prophets, when it has this apocalyptic language about the city of Jerusalem mm-hmm. and in the wilderness, it says that it's going to be made into a haunt of jackals. Yeah. The word jackal mm-hmm. is one of those Hebrew words for dragons. I think that it's Rahab, but I could be it could be a different one. Oh, it's, wrong. I think it's a different one. And it's okay. uh, I'm, I'm going to look it up because I knew this when we first started outlining and then I forgot. Uh, and it's the difference between, um, in the Hebrew, 
there's a word that means jackals, and then there's the word it's then there's the word tannin. Okay, so it is tannin. It's tannin. Yes. Yeah, it's okay. tannin, which is the Hebrew word for the Canaanite. Uh, the the mythological Canaanite mm. being that was a six headed dragon. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it was a demon, obviously. In Tannin, same word for what part of Exodus? Exodus seven. In what scene are we talking? About? When Aaron throws down the staff mm. and it becomes the six headed dragon, which is an image, obviously, of of God using the the, the pagan fallen angels to His own purposes, mm-hmm. and then the Egyptians throwing down their staffs, creating three other dragons, and then Tannin consuming them and going back into Aaron's staff. The first wizarding battle that is known in history, (laughs) and it was absolutely based. Oh... Wow, so cool. that, it's just—I mean, it's—I'm. What do you say to such I, glories? I don't know. What do you, what can you even say to that? So, yeah, I think in Job and these other places in Scripture that there there are such things in the world that God made as dragons. There are there are different varieties of them, and I yep. think that there is such thing as sea dragons. And I you do know too. what? Here I stand. I can do no other. <laughs> I will stand contramundum on this. Actually, it, it, the, the if you really dig. The accounts of sea dragons and sea serpents, mm-hmm. they aren't really that isolated. No. There's a lot of them. Yeah. One of my favorites is the Stronze Beast. Oh. Yeah. So the Stronze Beast, some villagers in 1808, after a wild storm, were walking the island's shore. Orkney and, Islands. Yes. Yes. Orkney Islands. Mm-hmm. And they came across this massive lump of flesh. This thing was 55 feet long, and it was very very wide so you can imagine how heavy this is and it was laying there dead they said that it had three pairs of legs and it had a long neck that had a horse's mane type of flesh on it yeah that would hang down its neck and then its tail was used to propel itself through the water supposedly yeah now we have you know scientists will will say that we had uh, dinosaurs that lived in the oceans mm-hmm. in the prehistoric era that looked just like this mm. You could easily say that this is a type of dragon. It's fa- it's fast. I mean, what's fascinating to me as well is so you picture like these villagers, and it said that the, the people who measured it one was a carpenter oh, and then two farmers. Yes. So can you just picture like you're you're this little island off the coast of Scotland? You're all these blue collar farmers, carpenters. There's got to be lots of people who build boats and do shipping because you're on an island. Your life depends on it. And and all of a sudden, everybody's just gathered around this giant globster, this lump of decaying some flesh that you're like what is that these are people who are familiar with the ocean they know what their island like the sorts of things it, it was after a storm mm-hmm. the day before this was the the 25th of september 1808 there'd been a storm the night before and the details this is not like a i saw this thing really quickly out of the corner of my eye one time and it was right before the sun was going down and i had been drinking heavily no, they're like, look, when you stroked the skin in one direction from uh, head to tail, it was smooth. And they said that it was rough when they stroked it from tail to head. Mm. So mm. like moving through the water. Yeah. Like the, 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 the skin of a shark, is, I, I imagine, maybe similar to that kind of I, bristling. I don't know. The denticles or whatever. But like it's stum- they said its stomach contents were red. Its fins were edged with bristles. It had a row of bristles down its back that glowed dark, but glowed in the dark when wet, 
Oh my gosh. And that when they dissected it, I mean, they have some FaceTime with this thing. <laughs> they dissected it and its stomach contents were red. So this is like a highly detailed. Yeah. Multiple sketches. Oh, we but, should we should put in the show notes one of the sketches. Yeah, we should. But let's lay the scene. Yeah. You're not a modern, okay? W- which is to say you're not completely ignorant mm-hmm. of the ways of the mm-hmm. land that you live on. Mm-hmm. We are not normal people. When it storms, we don't know what to expect the next day. When wind comes from the east, we don't know what that means. Yep. When it comes you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yep. These people did. They knew that. They had lived they had lived here for generations, probably yep. most of them. This is 1808. This is not 2000. No. This is actually a long time ago. So they stumble upon this scene. Shores that they've studied for their whole lives. Yep. Craftsmen, honest, working mm. people. More of them come out to see because they know that this is strange. Yeah. But they don't know what it is. They're studying oh, it. They're opening its stomach contents. It smells. It reeks. Yeah, the ocean waves are crashing on it, probably moving it and making yeah. it much harder to deal with yeah. because they don't want it to just go back out to sea. They want to study this thing mm-hmm. because they understood that they lived in a world of discovery. Mm-hmm. And so they draw sketches. They really understand that this creature is something new, at least to them. And it's mm-hmm. lonely. And they study it. And then, centuries later... After all of that has come and gone, people began to move away from their homelands and misunderstand the signs of nature and the places where they live. They don't know the land anymore. Yeah. The smart, white-coated scientists come on the scene and they say, oh, well, you know what? You know what sometimes is here? Basking sharks are sometimes here. It had to have been a basking shark, even though basking sharks, at least to my knowledge, don't have six legs they don't even have one leg they don't even have one leg they're have you ever seen a, have you ever met a one leg unless oh, you count the, unless you shark? count a dorsal fin as a leg get, get out of here get out does it have glowing bristles doesn't have glowing bristles no. doesn't have a mane also does not get anywhere close to 55 feet long no no it was it was not a basking shark it was it just was not it just was not a basking shark and this is the thing we moderns, because we can instantly open our phones and give ourselves the illusion of omniscience, where we can instantly, we feel like we can instantly find out anything immediately from our pockets, which is crazy. I mean, in ancient, they, they had to think and categorize things differently in their brains and store information differently because they didn't have this external brain in their hand that they could look stuff up. But what it's done is it's given us this illusion of omniscience. Here's the thing. I think the estimates are somewhere between 12 and 20,000 new species are discovered every year. Every year. On the planet we live in. What that means is that we have no idea what's out there. We just don't there. know. We no, just we don't, don't know. know. Again, 5% of the ocean floors have been mapped. That means that another way of saying that, if you got 5% on a test, my brother in Christ, you, <laughs> you failed. You did a bad job. You, you got an F. It's like... I'm Baron Spanky, and this is <laughs> your four. Yeah, because I was Baron not paying Spanky, attention. Not Aaron Mankey. <laughs> I was not paying attention to the test, and I anyway I had to work that in. The connected, the connectivity of our world, the the globalism that yeah. we think in terms of, mm-hmm. makes us think that the world is actually much smaller yep. than it is. Yep. And there's a sense in which, sure, yeah, a small world, that's crazy, and yeah, 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 but also the world is big. Yeah, the world is big, and it's mostly oceans. It's full of mysteries. And it's mostly oceans that we haven't mapped yet. Yep. So actually, 
the majority of the world is something that we just don't know. We don't know. And we think like, oh, we cover every surf, you know, we've, we've have boats everywhere. No, we, we have highly concentrated shipping lanes, yep. even air traffic that's 30,000 feet above the ocean, very often concentrated like lines of travel that we know. And so, you know, think about the fact that there's a garbage patch that's like the size of, I don't know, Nebraska or something stupid out in the middle of one of these oceans and it's a blip. Right, yeah. It's just a blip. Blip on the radar. <laughs> in comparison, <laughs> you know, and we did that. Like, wow, yes. human, we're so, we're, humans are powerful. Now, one way that we can see that this is not a new phenomenon, this fascination with the ocean and that there, you know, the, the, the antiquity of these uh, myths and stories from the ancient times would, would be the story of the Carta Marina. The Carta, you're probably familiar with, it means map. This was a map that was created in Rome just about 500 years ago between 1527 and 1539. It, Carta Marina means map of the sea, and it was drawn by a gentleman named Oleus Magnus. He was a diplomat to Rome from the Swedish government. So he, he was charged with creating this first highly detailed map of northern Europe, and that would include, of course, large swaths of the ocean. You get it, coastlines right relationship of different regions to one another across the oceans so he was drawing from sources that were very broad including things like ptolemy's map in geography in geographia i don't know how to pronounce that geographia is what we're going to go with and the work uh, of astronomer jacob ziegler uh, and so he produced this piece this map that has perplexed laymen and historians for decades if you look at this thing you'll see that the detail is ridiculously impressive in in the sense that even today the coastlands that he indicated they hold up pretty well which if you think about the way i mean we're mapping these things with satellite imagery yep gps gps technology and so we can obviously get things very precise using those technologies think of how you would have to go about making a map of the coastland from the ground just as a guy yeah it was art it was more art than science. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful work of art, but still impressive detail. And it's it's held up well in some some parts of it. But throughout the seas, he depicted various monsters and strange fish. This is and people blame this today on his use of descriptions of sea conditions from sailors, from these seasoned sailors that had you know, he was saying, Hey, tell me about this region, tell me about this place, and his own observations. So Moderns have debunked this, you know, debunked for his reliance on eyewitnesses and these uneducated, like, oh, the sailor did. How many PhDs did he have? Yeah, exactly. Did he have 2020 vision that day? A cartography. (laughs) Scholars, of course, dismiss all of his monstrous depictions. But here's the question. and, And I think that it's a fair question. Why do we assume Everybody who's telling these stories is just unreliable or a drunkard or a liar. Couldn't it be possible that at this time, before, especially before humans had really, in the numbers that we do today, traversed these regions of the ocean, that our heavy sea traffic has driven certain creatures away from our normal areas of traffic? Maybe these men, these sailors, actually saw things. He has a quote that includes... Uh, a description of, on sea monsters in particular. He says, quote, There are monstrous fish on the coasts or sea of Norway of unusual names, 
Though they are reputed a kind of whales, who show their cruelty at first fight, and make men afraid to see them, and if men look long on them, they will fright and amaze them. Their forms are horrible, their heads square, all set with prickles, and they have sharp and long horns round about. One of these sea monsters will drown easily many great ships provided with many strong mariners. Oleus Magnus from a treatise concerning the northern peoples. So here's the question. Is all of that just made up scared sailors telling sea stories or, you know, trying to impress people with their sea stories? Or are these kinds of stories which run throughout the world, across cultures, across times, across places, could could there be something to them? I obviously think that there is something to them. You know what? I take it all back. It's all made up. It's all made up. I'm just kidding. We're done with this. We're done. We're done doing this. The stupid we're gonna, podcast. We're going to rename this Cosmos. <laughs> the, it's not haunted. The stuff. We're going to rename it <laughs> Particles. <laughs> Uninteresting globules. Yes, yes, yes. No, I, I think that there are something to these accounts some people will also try to say that Oleus was just being, you know, artful with his depiction of the yeah. seas. And he was trying to include things to make it interesting because it was unknown. He was just trying to get clicks. Here's the thing. He came from a region of the world where he was trying to get clicks. That actually just landed. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. That's pretty good. Here's the thing, though. He came from a region of the world that had, even from ancient times, some of the greatest skill in seafaring. They were sailors. They lived on the water. They came from Vikings, and Vikings were expert sailors. So it's not really like Oleus looked at a map of the sea and thought, hmm, that's completely unknown to me. Yeah. Hey, can we uh, can we buy like a $1,000 uh, map, Carter yes. Marina, for the wall? Yes, 100%. That's New Christendom Press. Okay. Just charge it to the account. I will do that right now while we record. Yeah. Select size, biggest you have. Select size, 10 feet. <laughs> By 100 feet. Yes, that's what I want. <laughs> I want to be able to dive in and wrestle Leviathan. Anyway, I, I apologize. Continue. There's a good example, though, of, of what I'm talking about, where, where these aren't just crazy stories made up by random drunks that sailed around. Yeah. They really do cross cultures. In, uh, in 1641, sailor John Jocelyn produced a work called An Account of Two Voyages to New England. And in it, he documented his sighting of what later became known as the Gloucester Sea Serpent. It was sighted off the coast of Cape Ann in in Massachusetts, and Jocelyn recorded a massive snake that, quote, lay quailed up like a cable upon the rock at Cape Ann. In the next three years, another sighting of the beast would be seen near Lynn, Massachusetts. This sighting would provide an estimated length of 89 feet. 89 feet. For context, it's huge. The biggest school bus that the U.S. produces is 45 feet long. So pretty much double the length of a school bus that you see. The sightings of the Gloucester Serpent continued to be recorded for decades after, even up until 1819, when the Linnean Society of New England published a study recounting thousands, thousands of local sightings of this monster. There even came a time when people spotted smaller versions of the same monster that were crawling around on the beach and they and these snakes were covered in bumps. They were black and they were covered in bumps. Kind of gross sounding. Yeah. Local lore agreed that these snakes must be the offspring of the larger creature. Told to be thin in comparison to its length, locals told of noticing what appeared to be a spear or harpoon, some sort of sharp object sticking out of the beast's head. 
the failed attempt, maybe, of a brave seaman to save himself or to win himself glory by killing it. The serpent has even been featured in Bernard Hovelman's famous cryptozoology work, In the Wake of Sea Serpents. Now, because it had a massive horn sticking out of its head, yeah. do you want to know what the intelligentsia oh, said it guess. must be? I want you to, I would I'm like going to guess. I would like for you to guess. It's got a large horn sticking out of its head. Um, I think it was the planet Venus. Yeah, that's literally what they said. No, I'm kidding. They said, it was, they said it was the planet Mercury. Did they really? They had the audacity. No, what did they say? The gall. The gall. To say that this thing was a narwhal. Come on, a hundred foot long narwhal. I'm sorry. Of course. I'm sorry, guys. Like, how arrogant can you get? What a swamp gas explanation. These guys are real killjoys, all right? They're just like... <sighs> Actually. Uh, narwhal. Actually, it must be an Actually, narwhal. spelled A-C-K-S-H-U-A-L-L-L-Y. Actually. I'm a literal incel <laughs> living in my mom's basement making peanut butter sculptures with my cryptozoology <laughs> PhD, and I think that was a narwhal. For sure, you should listen to me. I have life experience. Trust the science. Here's the thing, Ben. I think it's funny that Americans will literally do anything other than use the metric system including measuring things in the number of school buses it is Dude, so true so true <laughs> my favorite was there was a news broadcast that uh, that, uh that said doggy sized pothole found on, like, on the like, local road come on and there's this they put this like cute little lab the in this pothole they're like see it's the size of a medium-sized lab take that king george yeah. Although there are only two types of countries. There are those who use the metric system and those who have been to the moon. Ooh, have we been to the moon? Oh, oh my episode. gosh. <laughs> I can't believe that we just said We might that. actually have a fight about it. <sighs> okay. Anyway. So look, here's the right. point. You're right. So many of these stories get dismissed as, you know, sailors that are drunk or they're just exaggerating. Mm -hmm. You know, we've all heard our uncle's tall tale mm -hmm. of that 80,000-foot-long marlin that he had yeah, off the coast of Florida. Totally just, caught. It got away, yeah, you know? I had it, though. But that's dumb, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Here's our scholarly explanation. That's, you're dumb. That's just, you're dumb. Here's the thing. You're boring. You're and dumb. You're dumb. <laughs> Not all sailors are just like, pathological That's liars. This is not how it works. And when we, so think about this. Think about this with me, Ben, just for a moment here. A lot of these men, so so take our opening story, our cold open from the Daedalus. We've got people giving these eyewitness testimonies who are, they have everything to lose and very little to gain from telling these stories because mo many of them are being entrusted by large corporations like the Dutch and East India Trading Company yeah. that owns the ships, which are very valuable put in charge of the souls of dozens of men, a huge amount of money in cargo, and trusted to make these decisions and be men of, you know, intelligence, yep. judgment, integrity, integrity, who will tell the truth and not literally pirate your stuff and steal it or or run it onto a shoal. And and these are the kinds of men over and over in history that give us highly detailed yep. detailed accounts of some of these things. And so to me, I think that one of the things that shows in a lot of these conversations is just that we have bad imagination and we are uh, moderns who just want to boil everything down to stuff we already know. Yeah, we want a boring world because we're a boring people. To get cognitive closure as quickly as possible. Now, to circle it back to something that we mentioned earlier, we were talking about how every particle in, in, in the entire universe is at war Yeah, between good and evil. Yeah. If you think about the Carta Marina, that story that you told about Oleus Magnus, 
he was drawing a huge cluster of sea serpents around an area of the world that was very pagan Mm -hmm. for a very long time. Yeah. Now, if you tie that in with ideas of Leviathan and Tannin, these dragon sea creatures, Mm -hmm. I think that a case could be made that many of of the fallen angels were dragons. I'm with you. I think you could like, and I'm talking from scripture, not, not just being weird. Yeah. I think that you can really make a good case that a lot of angels are dragons. And so a lot of the fallen angels are dragons. So I think that some of these sea monsters are genuinely demonic things. Maybe not all of them. Maybe, maybe some are just natural phenomena, but absolutely. I think that there's a case to be made. Yeah. I think that you can really make that case. And to me, it would make sense that something that is demonic would flock to a location that has been steeped in demonic pagan, and pagan lore. lore. Yeah, it's like we we as moderns and archaeologists, we dig up these ancient Canaanites and we think like, oh, they're just worshiping made-up God that's all made up. It's just made up, made up, made up. People just invent religions left and right. But then you're like, well, well hang on, because they'll they'll describe religious encounters with demon gods where they sacrificed to demon gods, and it was like a fish demon and all these different, you know, Goats and goat demons and yeah. all these different descriptions of these ancient gods. Uh, number 17, goat demons. Yeah. God literally says. He's like, there you go. <laughs> Stop worshiping the goats. So rather than saying all of it's made up, which is a very North American modern sort of materialist way of thinking, the reality is that the the powers have enslaved, the powers and principalities have long enslaved many regions of, of peoples to demonic, idolatrous, false worship. For example, in ancient Egypt, those Egyptian magicians seemed to genuinely be able to do things that were magical. Yeah. That seemed to have spiritual power behind them. Exactly. Right. So, yeah. so we we look at that, we're like, you know, even if you, I think the Prince of Egypt movie, didn't they have Is that the, the one? With, that's the one with Moses, right? Yeah. The I get that one, one mixed up with the Joseph one. No, it's, it's the Moses one and the yeah. Exodus. And they show the magicians doing like fake stuff. Yeah, like I illusions. Think. Yeah, like illu- exactly. Sleight they're, of hand. They're basically sleight of hand magicians. No, that's not what the it's Bible says. It's not what says. it was. It's not what it presents. So I think it's interesting, Ben, and I think this is the direction you're kind of leading us here, is that you could look at something like the UAP phenomenon. Yes. United. This is a United. United Airlines phenomenon. <laughs> this is unidentified, unidentified aerial phenomena. phenomena. Or USOs. Or unidentified submerged. Yes, objects. exactly. Yes. And if you look at a map of where we tend to see these, you know, quote unquote, we're going to do episodes on this, but alien stuff. Yeah. Very concentrated in materialist North America. Yeah. It, it, by, by miles away, North America yeah. is the most reported signs of UAPs. So wouldn't it make sense? And I'm just going to tease this because we're going to talk in length about it later. But wouldn't it make sense that the country that has become dominated by materialist thinking, that it's not nothing spiritual, it's just molecules in motion that we would all of a sudden start getting visitors from you know other planets who are telling us things like just love one another and get along in this kind of universalist sort of false religion and uh and and it and that literally that feeds the materialist yeah. worldview because yep we're not alone in the universe we're not special yep. we're not set apart it's all in the Ransom Trilogy, first of all. It's all in a the Bible. It's all in the Bible. It's all in the Bible. And the Ransom Trilogy. And the Ransom Trilogy. Another example of that yeah, kind of same line wheels. of thinking. Light wheels, let's my guy. Let's talk about light wheels. My I, guy. We're locked in. My guy. Light wheels. Light wheels. All right. So Tell the listeners what light wheels are, Ben. This is a quick thing, and it's really, really weird. But it's a great display 
Brian's dancing. I was picturing the sound design under this. Yeah, it's a great display of worldviews and demonic versus heavenly forces being at war. So you have this phenomena called light wheels. And this still happens today. Still happens today, but it started long ago where people who who would spend a lot of time on the sea would start to see spinning wheels of light that sat on the water surface. And I'm not talking about a sunset or sunlight that's being blown around, uh, you know, the water is being blown around by the wind and the sunlight is getting captured in it and it's giving this effect. No, no, no. It's almost like tangible light that you could reach out and grab. Moderns say that it's bioluminescent, plankton or bioluminescent uh, algae, but that doesn't fit the bill of what these people are talking about. No one who calls it that has actually seen it. And the people that have seen it say that it is definitely not that because they've seen pictures. Now, when it happened in the past, it would be recorded as up to 550 yards in diameter. Huge. Insanely huge. You know, more five football fields. In the words of Eric Kahn, that's huge. That's huge. Mm, that's huge. And spinning at a rate of 80 miles an hour. So it's not, it's not slow. Yeah. If wind were to produce that in water, the wind would have to be at least triple dang 80 miles an hour and that just doesn't happen often the point that i'm getting at is this eastern sailors when they saw it that were more steeped in a pagan religion specifically uh chinese sailors when they saw it would call them buddha's wheels so buddha who's not a deity but he's achieved the highest form you know he's achieved nirvana yeah so to to them he's basically a deity he's the ultimate good yep and they called it buddha's wheels but in the Christian West, without hesitation, the sailors commonly called them Satan's carousels. Dang. So you have this polarization yep. where these pagan religions are looking at them. They're like, oh, wow, that's so good. It's a God. Yeah. And you're seeing these, worship these Christian cultures looking at it and saying, that is evil inherently. Mm. Did, no, they, did they know something it's, that we don't? It's interesting if you read accounts of angels and like take Ezekiel. It's like glinting metal and flashing lights. Yeah. I mean, if, if you look at the, the biblical an illustration, a realistic illustration of biblical angels, and you start to realize, angels do appear in human form in, in the Bible commonly. Yeah, sure. But they also appear as crazy, lion-faced, multi-headed, many-eyed, <laughs> six-winged seraphim and cherubim Terrifying. with flaming swords and flashing lights, and they just sound like these, and, and then they show up and they're like, do not be afraid. Do not worship me. Do not worship me. We both worship the living God. <laughs> and then God. you're like, I just peed. No, I'm actually terrified. I pooped. I just completely. <laughs> the thing is, the thing is, the thing is, what are you gonna say? I, I shouldn't. No, it's it's actually, it is uh, interesting to see how, how people interpret. They tell the story. They tell the story. They say, this is that. Mm-hmm. And they fit it in. They, they try to, they say, this is, they, they harmonize it with the story of the world. We're always doing that. Materialists yes. are. Everyone does. Yeah. It. They're harmonizing the stories and these accounts and their own perceptions through the lens of their stories, which is why a lot of even materialists, I, I recently even heard a, a story of a, a woman who's like, I'm a, I'm a materialist. I was a doctor. I'm a medical doctor. Yeah. And then she had some kind of strange spiritual encounter and it was so compelling to her that she was like, I'm no longer that anymore. She's not a Christian. Right, right, right. But it changed her perception of the story. 
And so I think it's interesting to see that in North America, a lot of the time, the demonic strategy is to present like scientific post-millennialist sort of things. Like we can reach utopia through scientific endeavor and transhumanism and that kind of thing. Whereas other eight cultures that are still highly overtly spiritual, the demonic strategy is far different. It's like possession and And, weird demon stuff. And I hope one of the things that you're, that you're getting from us is that when we say spiritual experience or some sort of encounter, it's not something that's like, oh, your mom told you that when she was a kid, she saw a ghost out of the corner of her eye Mm -hmm. and when she looked over there, it was gone. No, we're talking about things that in the, in the, in the opening story, Mm -hmm. those sailors looked at that serpent for 20 minutes. 20 minutes. minutes. Yeah. 20 minutes. 20 full minutes. You know, keep going. So uh, my point is, these spiritual encounters, when we really get a window into the war, yeah. the, the cosmic war that's going on, yeah. they oftentimes do have physical, tangible manifestations to them. So yes. we shouldn't be surprised at that. Now, there's a really good example of this, actually. And, and it kind of ties in that geography principle that I was talking about yeah. earlier, where some demonic beings yeah. would flock to a pagan demonic right. land a place pre-christian place or an unchristianized yeah, place exactly brian can you tell us yeah about the cherokee uktana yeah the cherokee uktana this is a fascinating story and these permeates legends of north american and south american and central american native peoples in pre-christian times so the cherokee tribe lived in the southeastern what's today the southeastern united states they had legends and tales of a river serpent called the Uktena, or Uktena. I don't know how to pronounce it. I don't speak Cherokee. I, I just said it wrong earlier. I only speak Ojibwe. So anyway, I don't really. Makaday. Anyway, they told the story of this river serpent with four horns and dragonish wings. And you can you can read about this. There's an anthropologist named James Mooney. Uh, Mooney, sorry, James Mooney, who observed the Cherokee tribe in western North Carolina and described the Uktena in his 1992 book, History, Myths, and Sacred Formulas of the Cherokees. And he wrote, quote, Those who know say that the Uktena is a great snake, as large round as a tree trunk, with horns on its head and a bright blazing crest like a diamond upon its forehead, and scales glittering like sparks of fire. The blazing diamond is called the Ulan Suti, means transparent. And he who can win it may become the greatest wonder worker of the tribe. Still, it is worth a man's life to attempt it, for whoever is seen by the Uktena is so dazed by the bright light that he runs toward the snake instead of trying to escape. And so at the time of Mooney's, end quote, by the way, at the time of Mooney's study, uh, the tribe was assertive in saying that they were still in possession of the only known Uktena diamond that was successfully retrieved by a Cherokee warrior decades earlier, and however, since Mooney was not a part of their tribe, he's a white guy. He's like, they said, you're not allowed to see it. You can't come in. There's similar things in Skinwalker Ranch here in Utah where there's there's a whole canyon yeah. that they don't allow That's right. white people to go and non-tribe members to go. So the, the, the monsters, though, what's interesting is that in many of these tales, these monsters are often not just merely, they don't present them merely as physical creatures. Yes. There's an element where they're, they're born out of anger and envy and malice, uh, and, and they're like Western iterations of what you see in ancient Greek uh, legends, like the Tulkas, steam yes. and monster born out of human will. You see this in the Golem, in the, uh, what's the other one? I can't remember the other one, there's actually. A, there's a lot there of these kinds one. of... But and, and we'll probably have a whole episode on yeah. Tulkas. Yeah. 
because uh, you get into that with AI and stuff too, yeah, which is uh, dude. We got to do one on the demon AI. We got to do one on Lobe. Bro, be careful of the, yeah. Of don't Ro- Roko's Basilisk. I wouldn't look up AI Lobe just, <laughs> just like in all seriousness. Don't actually unless you got a tough stomach. But uh, anyway, you see that they're tying these things in. Now, yes, the Cherokee were a pagan people. Mm-hmm. We shouldn't expect them to be, you know, upfront all the time. Yeah, you know, m- maybe they're trying to make themselves seem more glorious to this white anthropologist. Yeah. Sure, maybe. The fact is, though, that this was something that all of them universally believed was true. I mean, they they held to it and they said, no, 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 I've seen this before. I've seen one of these things and yeah. it's terrifying. Yeah. You don't ever want to see it. So we shouldn't just write that off and say, ah, whatever. They were probably tripping on some psychedelics or something. Yes. We should be, we should actually say, no, that's possible. Because these are a mm-hmm. demonic pagan people that need Christ. Yep. So they're going to be oppressed by demons. Yeah. This isn't weird. And yeah. especially when they're saying that these things aren't born out of peace and love and kindness. They're born right. out of anger, malice, and envy. Yeah. We don't show up and evangelize the false gospel of modern materialism and say, all of your ancient legends are completely made up nonsense. No, we come in and we say... I absolutely believe that you and your or your forefathers had genuinely spiritual and demonic experiences. Let me tell you the truth yeah. about where these creatures come yeah. from. I believe you. Yeah, I believe you. Let me tell you the truth about the, the embattled cosmos that you live in. Let me tell you about the creator. And what you'll find is that often, so there was an interesting book, I can't remember the name of it right now, but it was a missions book. And it was noting how every culture had kind of a doorway, it seemed, where they, they even where they had lots of lesser gods and things created, uh, a lot of them had a doorway for the idea of a, like a father or like an ultimate yeah. creator of all things. And so Paul did this at the Areopagus in Acts 17, where he walked in and he said, look, you have this idol to the unknown God, this monument to the unknown God. What, what is unknown to you, I declare. Yeah. And he told them, he said, he didn't come in and say all of the Greek and Roman gods don't exist. Caesar. Yeah. Also. Were fake. <laughs> he said, I'll, I'll tell you the truth about the real, true, ultimate creator of all things. Yeah. Who's Lord over the powers and the principalities put them to open shame. And hey, it's no wonder that these demon gods are terrorizing you. Yeah. Because the God that they tried to defeat, Jesus Christ, mm. put them to open shame. Yeah. So they're going to do what they can to make their mark by terrorizing these these what they see as lesser beings, yep. which is humanity. And Christ would say, no, 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 those aren't lesser beings. Those are my people. Mm, so yes. he wants to defend you. Now, to me, the peak example okay. of this kind of thing in terms of ocean mystery. I'm ready for it. Is Atlantis. Disappearing Did islands. Did you just say Atlantis? Atlantis. At- Atlantis. Atlantis? This Greek myth. And then other Eastern and what and, and actually far yeah. Western yeah. myths of disappearing lands. Yeah. In Plato's fourth century BC works, Critias and Timaeus, a pagan tale is told regarding the formation of a beautiful island sitting away from the pillars of Hercules in the Atlantic Ocean. In this tale, Poseidon was given this land when the Hellenic deities of old divided it into fiefdoms for one another. According to the tale, the god of the sea fell in love with Cleito, who bore him five pairs of male twins, while the eldest of these ten brothers, Atlas, was given the crown of the ocean 
In this paradise land that Poseidon was forming, his brothers were given lesser realms to govern as well. The island flourished under Poseidon's power and lordship, being advanced in technology beyond any other civilization and ruling over many men in a large territory, even stretching to the mainland known as Greece. The island is said to have been made into concentric circles of land for protection, like layers in a cake that's been squished down onto the tabletop. Each ring was surrounded by a large wall that was made of red and black and white rock and covered in precious metals. According to Plato, speaking as his character, Critias, this island was involved in a brutal war 9,000 years before Plato's time between those outside the Pillars of Hercules and those within. With help from the Athenians, the lands occupied by Atlantis within the Pillars were liberated and the island dwellers were driven back. Destruction followed, as Critias tells us, quote, But afterwards there occurred violent earthquakes and floods, and in a single day and night of misfortune, all your warlike men in a body sank into the earth, and the island of Atlantis in like manner disappeared in the depths of the sea, for which reason the sea in those parts is impassable and impenetrable, because there is a shoal of mud in the way, and this was caused by the subsidence of the island. Atlantis confirmed. Ben, I, I'm not going to lie. And people at this point, if you're still listening to this and just you're hang like, on. and you're just, not like, I'm telling you're you. not like, I'm out of Haunted Cosmos. Guys, just <laughs> wait, please. These people are unhinged. They just both agreed that they know where Atlantis is. Listen. Oh, yeah. Listen. Listen, when I, <laughs> when I when I first discovered this this theory, and I've long been interested in this kind of stuff. I've read, you know, I've read different takes on Atlantis and whatnot. But I was one like I don't want to say one hundred percent. I was about ninety nine point three percent convinced that this is where the origin of the Atlantis tales, including that description that you just heard, came from. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I, same. Okay. First of all, before I even heard of this thing, yeah. and we're about to get into it, okay. I wanted to believe. We wanted to believe. I was like, hey, man, this is cool. You're like, like come, come on, on. Come, come on. on. And, I, and like, we're, we're, we believe in a, an antediluvian and post-diluvian world. As yes. Christians. Can you, just real quick, yeah. explain what you mean by that. So we believe that they're in, in what we could call catastrophism, which is that there was a catastrophic event in history. It's historical that took place right around, I don't know, Genesis 9, Genesis 8, <laughs> Genesis 9, where the world was flooded and decreated because of <laughs> oh my gosh because of problems that were satany we'll get there <laughs> we'll get there we'll get there we'll because of problems we get there when, when we, we get, get there. there we get Insert there when we get mr there. incredible's yeah right. so but yeah and then god flooded the world and then he remade the world with like uh this noah noah figure second adam kind of figure i don't mean second adam is in christ but like he took the world back down to a family and then rebuilt the world again yeah so so when we when we go out into the world and we discover and I'm talking about from North American native native tribes through Aboriginal peoples to European peoples to Chinese and Asian peoples to Rush. I mean, to the lizard people in Antarctica. Gilgamesh, one of the oldest writings that we know of, to the lizard people in the Hollow Earth <laughs> under Antarctica. When we talk to all of these reputable lizard people sources, <laughs> what we find? No, what do we find? We find we find stories find of catastrophic, flood floody sort of decreation. Yep, yep, flood myths. So. All right. 
I have two words for you. Ricotte structure. <laughs> the ricotte. Take us there. Guys, okay, okay. You have got to look this up. Because what I'm about to say isn't going to quite do it justice. No. We'll link a video in the show notes that is mind-blowing. Yeah. But this, this thing is called the ricotte structure. It's located, bear with me, bear with me. Yeah, I'm bearing with you. In the middle of the Sahara Desert. Okay. And it is Atlantis. <laughs> <laughs> the way that you sold that could have convinced anyone. It's, 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 it's where Atlantis was. Listen. And it's in the middle of the Sahara Desert. Before I start giving some details, let me lay some more groundwork. Just in terms of what Plato's already said. Yeah. So Plato got this story from his ancestor so long who was a, a Greek philosopher six generations before Plato or so, something like that. Yeah. Plato got, got this story passed down from Solon, and they both agreed that Atlantis was historical, that it happened. Yeah, they, they were not making up a, a myth. No, they, no. They both intended to convey history. Plato was not trying to be metaphorical and fictional here. Yeah. Solon had traveled to, uh, to Alexandria during his lifetime, which at the time was the pinnacle of history and record in the in the entire ancient world. And when he went there, he saw this wall that had a hieroglyph about some island that was cataclys- uh, cataclysmically destroyed mm-hmm. 9,000 years before. And so he asked the Egyptian priest, hey, can, can you explain this to me? And the Egyptian priest tells him the story of Atlantis, that there was this great advanced technological island 9,000 years earlier, and it had fallen in a single day because it had overstepped its bounds or or maybe it was overrun by a by a global flood you know? maybe it was ruled by a demon maybe it was ruled by and a demon god, god named Poseidon and showed that he was better than Poseidon yes maybe it maybe was ruled that. by Poseidon and his Nephilim sons oh you went there <laughs> so anyway they consider this history all right now the supposed date according to Solon had occurred like i said 9000 years earlier Regardless of whether you are a global flood enjoyer, which every Christian is, which is weird to say because it was massive judgment, or <laughs> you got to be global flood max. Yeah, or some like lame, lame, dumb atheist. This does uh, this date coincides with a cataclysmic event called the Younger Dryas climate disaster. What's important is not that they were right in calling it that or that their details are right. Yeah. The atheists, I mean. Yeah. Rather, it means that there was a huge event that took place that changed the climate of the globe forever, forever since. Mm. Now, the way that Plato describes Atlantis is concentric circles of land. So there's this central island, and then there's a ring of water, like a moat. And then there's a, another, uh, another ring of land around that. It's like a bull, it's like a target that you'd shoot at. There's another ring of land, another moat of water, last ring of land, and then a last ring of water. And these rings are fed by some massive source of water mm-hmm. uh, on all sides. So you think like a like a bullseye target, and it's an island. This looks exactly like the ricotte structure in the northern Sahara. Yes. Scientists do not know how this structure was formed. They do not know... Uh, if it was man-made or if it was natural, though they have a very hard time proving mm-hmm. that it was natural. Yeah, they, they have some theories, but they're unsubstantiated. They're, they're just mere conjecture. And frankly, they're unsatisfying. They're unsatisfying. They know for a fact, because this was the, the most obvious thing, was like, oh, this is an impact yeah. site for, for a meteor. It's not an impact it's site. It's not an impact site. They know meteor, that it no. is not that. They're very confident. And even if you look at it, 
It doesn't look like it would have been formed because it's got like yeah, it's got the, the concentric ridges. ridges. It's got a, it's got concentric, not circles. a bowl, not a big you know bomb shaped bowl. Yeah, when you throw a rock at the sand on the beach, it doesn't ripple like the water does. That, that, so true. And this record and this record <laughs> structure has ripples. Plato records that the outer circle is fourteen and a half miles in diameter. Mm-hmm. This coincides exactly. Yeah, with the ricotte structure. Yep. I mean, it, it is it is to the T. Yeah. If you take an average diameter, Plato says that the mountains of Atlantis were celebrated. So, Brian, so, Brian, 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 whoa, 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 Brian, my my guy, are there mountains in the Sahara? Hang on, let me tell you something about the Sahara. Yes, <laughs> there are Ben. There not only are there mountains, they fit the exact description of Plato's location and geography. <laughs> I mean, this is insane. on the north side of the island. Supposedly, you could look over and you could see a mountain range. Okay, so I know a lot of us pictured like an island in the middle of the Atlantic that sunk. Yep. That's not really what's described here. He's, there's some island. There's some mountains to the north. The Rakat structure has mountains to the north. Guess what else was described by Plato on those mountains? Please tell me. Many rivers flowing into Atlantis. Okay. Many rivers. Do you know what we see on these? Tell me what we see, Ben. We see satellite imagery. What do we we see? see clear evidence, clear evidence of river basins, river basins flowing into the Rakat erosion through these mountains on the North side of the Rakat structure that would have been formed by great rivers flowing long ago. All right. Into the city, into the region. Now I know what you're thinking. Oh, Ben. (laughs) The, the Sahara isn't in the ocean. The Sahara's dry. The record structure is 50 plus miles away from the coast. I just took my headphones off. <laughs> but if you're done, I'll put them back on. I'm done. Okay. Because, hey, guess what? If you take satellite imagery around the record structure and, and yeah. you look at a, this massive view from the record structure 50 plus miles to the west mm-hmm. where there actually is a coastline, yeah, you'll see what looks like obvious i mean you don't have to be a geologist to know that this is what happened that there was water up there and then it receded and it pulled sediment back great waves across the land have you ever looked in your driveway during a during a rainstorm not only have i looked in my driveway (laughs) when i lived in england our street flooded oh perfect i put my wellies on Mm. and i just had the greatest time the amount of money I'd pay to see a young Brian in some wellies. It'd be no more than $15, but no less than 5 For me, it'd be no more than 5 no less than 1 Okay. So anyway, <laughs> if, you've, uh, if you've been in your driveway during a rainstorm and there's been some sediment or dirt that, yeah. the, that the storm washes out of your yard, mm-hmm. you'll see it kind of creates like ridges that look like waves yep. of dirt, right? Do you know what I'm talking about? I know what you're talking about. With you this is in. obviously clear in satellite imagery of the Sahara Desert yeah. around the Rakat structure. And, and Plato describes that this region, you could have approached it with, via ship Yeah, before. There was an inlet. But that what happened is afterward, it was all choked with mud and you couldn't even get there. There was all yes. of a sudden this great quaggy land marshy sort of stretch between the ocean and this place now, which perfectly fits. Yep. Other thing, we know that, that, that Sahara was a great humid rainforesty kind of place yeah. before the desertification with the climate with this massive and a post-diluvian yeah. climate change <laughs> uh, that happened. So, you know, Al Gore was probably warning everybody about it for years before it happened. That's true. Actually, ancient no Al Gore, Al- Alice Gorus, yeah. he was an absolute idiot. He was like, get 
Something an never electric changed. camel or the world is going to flood. Something's never changed. Al Gore sucks then and he sucks he now. He sucks. No. <laughs> anyway, so some of the other details There's about more. Atlantis that, that Plato says about the rocks, you know, you have red, black, and white rocks. In Utah, we have all of these. We have limestone, yeah. which can be very white, very beautiful, yeah. or granite can sometimes look white. And then you have uh, sandstone, obviously red. And then you have basalt. Basalt is this, it almost looks like charred <clears throat> sandstone. Yeah. It's very black beautiful. Mm. Now, when I heard about that, I was like, ah, it seems like a kind of nail in the coffin. I don't know yeah. if like Northern Africa is going to have this. No, 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 but no. But guess no. what? They actually have all three. They do. Plentifully there. Yep. And, and like, you don't have to look hard. It's just there. Ben. Ben. Brian. Ben. B. You got to get to the elephants at some point. Oh, dude, I forgot about the elephants. Get to the elephants. Anyway, I, I don't want to interrupt you. Keep no, going. I'm, I'm, I'm going to keep, keep going. So the last thing before the elephants. It also talks about the walls being full of precious metals. The leading export from the country that the Rakat structure is in, which I can't remember the name of. It's some African name. Yeah. Yeah. It, I, I can't like either. Abalubi. I'll find it. Uh, it. The leading exports are copper and gold. So this is a land that prides itself, actually, on being full of precious metals. Yeah. So it makes sense that the ancient city would have more plentiful precious metals and would have put it all over the place to show off. It's in Mauritania. Okay, that Northwest did, Africa. That that I'm sure everyone knows where that I is. literally did not know that was a place before <laughs> I found this. Which is actually a good point. People say, Why didn't anybody know about this place? My brothers and sisters hey, in Christ. Yes, tell us, please. It's in the middle of the Sahara Desert. Also very difficult to get to. Impossible to see in, in, unless you see it from above. Yeah, no one lives no one lives here. No one lives. I mean, this is for a long time. You don't want to be here because yeah. now it's a barren wasteland. It's a place that tries to kill you. Almost as if it had been judged by God oh, for being so wicked and crazy. pagan and horrible. Wild. Uh, but the other thing is, shoot, what was I going to say? Well, it's it's uh, you can only see it from above. I, I've seen pictures from people on foot in the region, and you can't tell that what you're looking at is this giant concentric ringed structure. Yeah, that is true. Because it's 14 and a half miles wide. That is true. Very big. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I don't but know what you were going to say, but that's no, what well, I, I can't. It must not have been important, but the elephants. <laughs> yeah, let's get to the elephants. Oh, the springs. Okay. Did you already talk about the springs? No, elephants first. Elephants first, then springs. Plato discusses uh, the the pride of Atlantis being their like war elephants. And you, and you just go, what? And you go, that sounds cool. You just say, okay. You say, Hannibal? Yeah, seriously. <laughs> over the Alps? On over, his... over the Alps? Right. And Caesar's like, am I a joke to you? <laughs> am I a joke to you? <laughs> so there's these elephants here. that They pride themselves on the elephants on the island. Around the Rakat structure, they have not only found petroglyphs depicting elephants, They've also found... Uh, skeletal remains. Skeletal remains. Skeletal remains. Boom! Atlantis confirmed. Atlantis confirmed. Now tell us about the springs. Okay, so in the in another part of the description that Plato gives is that the center island uh, has a spring in the middle that Poseidon supplied, like this is what he says, that Poseidon supplied to ensure fresh water, a couple of springs, one warm, one cold, and that there was a well at the city center that provided this fresh water. And that what's interesting is that the Rakat structure has such a place in yes, the middle. In the very middle. And what would be the central city? Yeah, what would have been a central city. And then there's also salt water In a, if you go further out. The springs yes. will be salty. Yes. Which which is just, I mean, the, the, the number of details. It's unbelievable. That map onto Plato's description with the Rakat structure. It's ridiculous. <laughs> now I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna land this plane <laughs> to quote our yeah. friend C. R. Wiley. Yeah. I, 
I'm going to land this plane of what we're talking about with pagan geography. Okay. The argument that I'm going to make is that in the antediluvian world, you had the sons of God, which I take to be fallen angels. They were attracted to the daughters of men and they bred with them and they created the race of the Nephilim, the race of giants. I think that you can make a good argument that a lot of the ancient pagan gods, like the Greek gods or the Roman gods or Eastern, far Eastern gods, mm-hmm. you could make the argument that those were fallen angels who were, who were demon gods that required the worship and the blood sacrifice of their people. And they completely twisted the proper worship of God. Mm-hmm. To, and they also had great power. They clearly had great power because God warns Israel of worshiping these things. Yeah. I mean, this is not not in the Bible. Right. God is warning Israel, stop worshiping the goat demons, stop worshiping Molech, stop worshiping uh, Baal yeah. and the Egyptian gods. Now, I think that some of these uh, uh, like demigods that Greek myth tells us about could be Nephilim. Yeah. Where there are these almost superhuman type people. Yeah. Many so, such cases. My, yeah, many such cases. In ancient writing. My argument is that genuinely there were, and I'm not even kidding, many such cases yep. of cities like Atlantis that existed across the world yep. who were ruled by demon pagan gods yep. and were sub-ruled by their Nephilim children to take dominion over men. I mean, it says in the story that they reigned over men even through the pillars of Gibraltar or the pillars of Hercules, which is just the straight of Gibraltar. Um, even onto what is now modern Greece. Yeah. Some examples of this. Right. Yeah, let's I, I want to give you some examples. Because this is not just isolated. This is not isolated. There is a place called the Yanuguni, which is known as the Atlantis of Japan. It is a monument off Japan's coast that's thought to be a remnant of a lost continent called Mu. It's this massive rock formation. It's completely submerged now. And it's been... Uh, studied to have clean cut lines and almost massive steps like a massive staircase and terraces and remains of old columns and other other architecture it does make me wonder if it was an entryway or a staircase of giants like massive giants but that's sort of a we'll talk about giants in another episode <laughs> yeah we will this was found to be a man-made city in the late 1990s so again the up until then, it was like, maybe this is natural, maybe natural, not. Yeah. In the 1990s, they confirmed that it had to be man-made because teams found carvings of geometry, animals, and people in the structure itself. Around it, they found in- uh, infrastructure of old roads, old wells, old mines. Just to quickly put a nail in the already rotting soft pine coffin of the evolution uh, myth, a lot of fuss is made about how this man-made structure that they found could be housed in 22 million year old strata. And you have to see in the notes, <laughs> Ben spelled the phrase 22 million year old strata like the SpongeBob. Where meme. every other letter is capitalized. <laughs> with, the, with the idiot capital. 22 million year old strata. So, anyway, c- continue. I just had to note that. Continue. Look, they'll make a big hoopla about that. They're like, oh, how come this, you know, 5,000 year old city is in 22 million year old strata? Well, it's because God made a mature universe with a mature I'm Earth. I'm sorry. Yeah. So you're going to have folks building cities on top of rocks that if we really studied them, they're going to look like they're more than 10,000 years old. Beside the point. But we digress, but it's true. So you have this Japanese monolithic city that we have submerged remains of off the coast of Japan clearly fits the bill of an Atlantis type place. Mm-hmm. It, it was vi- for the time that it was made had to be incredibly civilized. It had roads, it had wells, it had mines. Another option 
is the lost city of Dwarka. Dwarka. This is like the Hindu version of Atlantis. Yep. Did I just say another option? I meant I, to say another example. It's an yeah. It's not this. To be clear, Ben's not saying this is another. Place. Maybe this was where Atlantis this isn't was. like this isn't like Sky Mall catalog where you get to pick your favorite Atlantis you know, demonic city. No, there was there was Atlantis, <laughs> and then there was Dwarka, and yes. then there was this Listen. other one. The what is it? The Tronus. The, the, the Tronus. There's Yonaguni. Yes, all these. Okay. These are examples. So, so tell us about Dwarka. The lost city of Dwarka is like a Hindu. Let me just ask you a question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Does Dwarka maybe have some kind of, I don't know, God ruling over it, founding it? Chad meme. Yes. Kali. Krishna. Krishna. Was thought to be the founder of the city of Dwarka. And it was this beautiful city. It, it far surpassed all others, both in beauty and technology. Who's to say these demon Hindu gods were not fallen angels who bred and created their own Nephilim that helped build this massive city. But one day, as legend says, it was swallowed up by the sea. That's the other thing. I mean, all these cities are kidding me. All these cities are said to be drowned. And Numenor's like, am I a joke to you? Yeah, New- Tolkien's like, guys, this is really old. Tolkien's like, I have read things from <laughs> the past. All the remains of this uh, lost city of Dwarka that they finally found, they point to it being some of the oldest ruins in the world that anyone has ever been able to stop another example yet another one is tronus now i've heard it pronounced tronus but it's spelled thonus so whatever choose your own adventure (laughs) tronus was an egyptian city that was also highly highly advanced it was supposed to be the city of the gods and it was off the coast of the mainland in the middle of the mediterranean the greeks said it had long ago been swallowed by the sea now, up until 2012, wild. This city of Tronus was thought to be completely mythical, completely made up. Yeah. But in 2012, its remains were found at a depth of 50 meters near Abuker Bay. It had remained hidden for over 1,200 years. Here's the thing: it's like at this point, when I read ancient legends, I just go, anything, uh, any, any of the gods are all demons. But it, this happened. Yes. Because we keep finding these things. We keep, you know, we keep confirming that and remythologizing the world and discovering. It's it's not just stuff, dude. I'm at the point where I 100% just trust what the ancients said. When you read the ancients, you're like, <laughs> I'm, I'm just not, gonna, I'm not skeptical at all. I'm gonna understand where they were pagans. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. when they were like, they didn't, they didn't, they were not saved. They needed, they needed, they Christ. needed Christ. They needed Christ specifically to come to bind the strong man and plunder his house of the world, so that they would stop being ruled yeah, by these by demons. horrible demon yeah. gods. So, so 100%, Christ, dude, he binds the strong man, and then he goes and he plunders his house. He, there's a cosmic reordering that happens at the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And a lot of these ancient peoples that have been ruled by demons eventually became Christian. Now, I think that in these cataclysmic, world-changing events, you still see echoes of these things that happen in the modern day. So there was the fall of man. It changed the world completely. There was the flood. It changed the world completely. Yeah. There was the uh, there was the entrance of the church age in 70 AD. It changed the world completely. Paradigms were shifted. Yep. But we still see echoes of these old world events that take place. Yeah. And one modern example is a Japanese, we find ourselves in Japan again. Yeah. The Japanese legend of the Devil's Sea. You've heard of the Bermuda Triangle. Yeah. This is not Flight that. 19, etc. Yes. This is far worse. The Devil's Sea is where boats, planes, and people go to die inexplicably, utterly missing, with no remains. 
The lore says that there is an advanced underwater city there where demons dwell. And I'm not making this up. This is what they believe is real. And they wreak havoc on the region above the waters where they live. Records from older times tell even of sightings of a dragon that lives there that would come up and devour sailors while they sailed over its realm. In 1955, massive modern ships, the largest ships of the day, both cargo and military, as well as the most modern and large planes, started disappearing here too, utterly without a trace. These things happen, and they are completely unexplained in the matter. I think that what we're concluding here is that not all of the mysteries of the deep are matters of antiquity in no. ancient legend. The deep places of the earth still appear to be haunted by the unknown. Let me leave you with one last story here. Again, a recent one. Lay it on me. In 2003, off the coast of Australia, there was a researching crew that was going out and tagging sharks. Specifically, they were attempting to tag great white sharks off the coast of Australia, southwestern Australia. And they would tag these sharks with these little tags that could record across time, temperature, and depths. So at any, it would log the time, you know, in, at this point in time, it was this temperature and at this depth underwater. Okay. Now they, they tagged this female great white shark about three meters long. That's about nine feet long. And, and then, you know, they go back to their shore, get back on their boat, continue tagging other sharks, etc. Well, then about four months later, this tag was discovered on the beach somewhere. It was someone found, they, they brought the tag in. They said, oh, we found your tag. Now the tag, when it was logged into the computer, it showed that for about a third of a year after it was attached, the female great white operated normally, swimming around exactly as they would expect. But then all of a sudden, in the space of just a, f- a minute or two, all of a sudden, the female great white shark was plunged to a depth of about 2,000 feet under the water in a very quick span of time. And that the ambient temperature surrounding that tag, so the measure of that temperature, went from 46 degrees Fahrenheit to over almost 80 degrees Fahrenheit. A 30-plus degree rise in a matter of minutes. The only explanation, the only explanation that this data tells us is that this nine-foot great white shark, alpha predator, was swallowed very quickly by some extremely large animal that took it down 2,000 feet under the ocean where it never saw the light of day again. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Haunted Cosmos. We will see you next time. Signing off, I'm Ben. And I'm Brian. Thanks again. Did you know that patrons get access to bonus stories that didn't make it into the main episode, as well as early access to half of the season of Haunted Cosmos at a time? Support the show and get access to all kinds of great perks at patreon.com slash hauntedcosmos.